Had enough of the been there, done that ideas, tired of too much talk and so little action. Rewind now and welcome to Transformation and Change Radio with Dr. Kathy O'Bear, where the vision of true equity, inclusion, courage, and purpose meet powerfully. Dr. Kathy delivers with dynamic, engaging conversation and the most authentically brave dialogue on air today. This hit show will challenge you to explore current issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion and deepen your capacity to choose courage to speak up to greater inclusion in everything you do. Fasten your seatbelts and accelerate your effectiveness to become a powerful change agent in your life, community, job, and society. Imagine true equity and inclusion and get the tools to really manifest your vision. No frills, no fluff, just really powerful, good stuff. Transformation and Change Radio starts now. Welcome. I'm Kathy O'Bear, Center for Transformation and Change, and I just want to invite us all to take a deep breath. When Dr. Robin DiAngelo so powerfully said yes, when I said, would you come on, what, five, six weeks ago, never would imagine we'd be talking live in this context of protests, uprising, just really challenges to police brutality, police violence, the killing of so many unarmed black folks, the weaponizing of white privilege in Central Park. You may know Dr. Robin DiAngelo from MSNBC or NPR this weekend, or you may know of her originally from her 2011 article around white fragility that just took off in folks for racial justice and social justice education or her book, White Fragility, Why Is It So Hard for People to Talk About Racism? You may have seen her live. She does all kinds of speakings and trainings around the country and other outside countries of the U.S., I believe. Yes. Or you may have seen her in many of the YouTube videos that are up. Just she's so generous with her writings and her work. And Robin, I am just so honored to have you, especially in this time as we talk about what is our role as whites in this current time of pandemic and trying to disrupt racism, white supremacy, and create true racial justice, and so many other things. So welcome and thank you for joining me. Thank you, Kathy, for having me. I have a deep respect of you and your work, so I'm honored to be talking to you. Oof. I just want to just, I'm so grateful for you and your work. And I just want to start with how are you? Because you've been out in these weeks in ways that I've not. Just how are you as a white change agent in these times? My heart is very heavy. I feel the tears pretty close to the surface. Um, this sense of impotent injustice, the struggle to not uh, succumb to hopelessness uh, as a white person. You know, how, how black people navigate hope or hopelessness in this moment is a different question, not mine to answer, but as a white person, I know I cannot go there. It only serves me to feel hopeless, to give up. Um, so there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah. I join you with the heaviness feeling I'm not enough, I, I should be doing more, I should be out in the protests and the white accountability groups I'm doing, I'm not reading enough. And I know when I spin and I'm not enough and hopeless despair, then I go to inaction. So I join you in believing there is a way through. And as one African-American friend of mine said last week to me, 
uh, y'all whites are just, some of y'all are just waking up, but there's been centuries of racism, white supremacy. So yes, a few things got on video, but the thousands that don't. So yes, glad you're now coming on board. Uh, but we've been doing this a long time. And so follow our leadership. Um, and so I want to maybe start there because you have been doing anti-racism, racial justice work longer than I have. And can you just talk about what, what brought you to wanting to do this work and really commit your life and your life's work to dismantling racism and creating liberation? Yeah, and I want to connect my answer to that to to what you just quoted your friend of saying is that uh, white people are just coming on board. And while we have to come on board, uh, we can do that in ways that actually cause more harm, especially if we're new to the work. Uh, so I see myself like all white people who grew up in this society, that I was raised to be racially illiterate. You know, you, you know you can get a graduate degree in this country, be certified as highly educated, be seen as qualified to do or lead virtually anything or anyone with no understanding whatsoever uh, of systemic racism, uh, with no ability to engage with nuance in that. Now, the, the effect of not having that critical understanding and ability to engage is not benign. <laughs> uh, it, it actually functions to uphold this system. Uh, and so I was your typical white person. I saw myself as progressive and open-minded. Uh, and I applied for a job that I wasn't qualified for. Uh, but of course, I'm white, so I got the job. This was in the early 90s. It was for a diversity trainer. Had no idea what it was. But when I read the job description, I, I thought two things. How fun. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's just the coolest stuff. Uh, who doesn't love to talk about these things? Uh, and then, of course, and I am qualified to lead people in talking about these things because I'm open-minded. And I got the job and I was in for the most profound journey of my entire life on two parallel tracks. And the first one was that for the first time in my life, I was working side by side with, with people of color because they put us out to do these mandatory workplace trainings in interracial teams. And so for the first time in my life, I was being challenged uh, in the way that I saw the world and my place in it. And part of being white is I could be at that place in life. I was 30. I was college educated. I was a parent. And I had never, ever had my racial worldview challenged before. I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you I had one. <laughs> uh, and so I was like a fish being taken out of water. And then the second part was going out into the workplace into um, primarily and sometimes 100% white environments trying to talk about racism when the only person of color in the whole room was whatever co-facilitator I was with. Hmm. And the hostility, the meanness was jaw-dropping. Um, and I had enough of you know that beginning awareness of, by, by virtue of just being involved in this program. But um, for the most part, I felt like a deer in headlights. It, but it was so consistent. It was so predictable. It was so scripted. What, what white people are going to say and do when this topic comes up that eventually I just got better and better at 
seeing. How, how do we pull that off? What's happening? What framework of meaning are we operating from that we would respond like this <laughs> to this particular discussion? And I got better at articulating that uh, to other white people. And after five years of for a living, <laughs> which very white people, very few white people for a living talk about racism. Most of us avoid talking about that at all costs. I realized, okay, that was extraordinary. Most people don't have that experience uh, and I'm going to go get my PhD. <laughs> so unlike a lot of academics, I went from practice to theory. So I got that PhD and I continued to do trainings but also to write uh, and speak uh, about it. So that's, that's my story. Well, I so relate to you on some levels of, I got to be in a <clears throat> consulting group started by LCY Cross Associates and they were doing racism and sexism and my arrogance. I'm like, I'm studying this doctorate work. I can do this. And no one, I had not heard anyone challenge me in my ignorance. And as you said, racial literacy. And one of my turning points clearly in 1997 is when I showed up weaponizing white supremacy. Now that may not be the right term, but in the shower just now, I thought that that I was like, that's what I did is I had colleague, black, two black colleagues, supervisors of mine leading this environment of learning. And I did not follow their direction. And in fact, I publicly challenged them because I knew I was right and bet. Yeah, I saw your face and I got very clear, direct feedback. And um, what I relate to in Amy Cooper, the woman in Central Park, if folks don't know, weaponizing whiteness, white supremacy, and putting Christian Cooper black male's life in danger by calling the police and lying, um, that I was weaponizing whiteness. I was like, how dare you confront me? It's on that continuum. And so I got that insight as we were just talking now, that even in that moment, I was weaponized and I was very low in their organizational chart and yet my whiteness my white privilege my arrogance my sense of I am smart better superior and I wonder if all of what I'm sharing extroverting is related to white fragility um, or what your reaction is to that because your work has been so instrumental in naming the ways we whites react out of our white supremacist beliefs were better, how dare you, and we have a right to our mm -hmm. space. Um, and we show up in these ways that are so destructive and harmful. Yeah, so what I wanna break down a little bit for listeners that, that, that cause that's a pretty provocative phrase, right? Weaponizing white privilege, white superiority. And so not only did you manifest it, but in, in your reaction, in your taking over and thinking you could, you know, decide best for everybody, the, you know, those kinds of very common white dynamics. But the weaponizing part happens where we've all been conditioned to respond in particular ways and to see in particular ways. So I already have laid into me a sense that uh, I'm gonna, if given the particular moment we're in, I'm going to use uh, Black people as an example. I've already been conditioned across my entire life that, that they are less competent, that they are less intelligent, that they are less qualified. You know, all of those narratives and stereotypes that, that are circulating constantly. So when you do that, that also reinforces for everyone else in the room and sets them up more to fail. So, so I, I think that's, that can help us think about what do you mean you weaponized it, right? Well, you, 
you didn't have to consciously wield it, but the impact reinforced mm. all those things for everyone. I think that might be uh, helpful for people to, to hear. Um, and so let's also break down a little bit the term you used, white supremacy. And I, and I don't know if you use this often on your show, if you've um, explained nope. it before, but it, okay. So Please let's do, do it because um, we had Shelly Talchuk on that she did, Amy Ferber, but please go. Well, we can't hear it too many times. Oh, I think in a, in a lot of ways, it's like water dripping on a rock. <laughs> it certainly mm. has been for me. I didn't get this just because I read Peggy McIntosh's article one day back in the 80s. It, it, was, a, it was one drip of the water on the rock uh, that will be the process of my life uh, coming to consciousness, right? It's lifelong and ongoing. So white supremacy I was raised, like many white people, to see that as referring to people wearing white hoods. And certainly it includes people who would wear white hoods. But it's also a highly descriptive sociological term to describe the society we live in, a society that holds white people up as the norm for humanity, as the ideal, the human ideal. And everyone else is a particular kind of humanity and a deficient version of that humanity. And, and you get that reinforced when you always mark everyone's race who isn't white, but you don't mark white people's race. So we've got Mike Lee, the filmmaker, uh, and Spike Lee, the black filmmaker. Right? And by always naming Spike Lee's race, but not Mike Lee's race, mm -hmm. what you grant to Mike Lee that Spike Lee is not getting is you grant to Mike Lee individuality, mm objectivity, universality. He is seen as being able to speak for all of humanity because he's not seen as speaking from any particular position. Mm. Now, for me, it's like he speaks from such a white male position, but you know that that's not how we're thought uh, set up to see him. Spike Lee then is always biased. He's always speaking only and can only speak for a very limited and special interest. So white supremacy is that concept and it, it's ubiquitous. It's the water we swim in. None of us avoided internalizing it. And, and I want to tell a story that will set up, I think, a lot of things we're going to talk about. When I first took that job as a, as a diversity trainer, we had to go through a five-day train the trainer. So we were about 50% white, 50% um, black, indigenous, and peoples of color in the room. And we had to you know, learn the curriculum. And by the afternoon of the first day, all the tensions erupted because that's when the white uh, facilitators turned to the black, black and, and uh, other people of color in the room and said, okay, so teach us about racism. And they looked at us and said, uh, no, uh, actually they said some version of hell no, <laughs> that's not our job. I mean, notice the lack of uh, humility in saying um, I'm not qualified for my job. It never occurred to me that like asking them to teach me about racism meant that I actually wasn't qualified for the job. And so we started arguing, the, the room just split. And, um, you know, I remember feeling great umbrage. I had my arms crossed. Like, well, how am I supposed to know if you won't teach me? Mm, I relate. And I'll never forget this, this white woman in the middle of all this argument calls out into the room, all the white racists raise your hand. Mm. And almost every white person raised their hand, except for me. I'm like, I'm not raising my hand. I'm not racist. 
And I sat there thinking, see, I was showing everybody I was the good one. I relate. Uh, and I drove home all smug about that. Um, and uh, I realized today, of course, when I would, I would raise my hand because I have a very different understanding of what that means. Hmm. Um, but the very thing I thought was showing I got it was not doing that at all. So um, that leads us to white fragility. When I first coined that term, the fragility part was meant to capture how little it takes to cause white people to melt down. I'm pretty sure there's white people listening right now who are already taking umbrage at the fact that we're generalizing about white people. That we're having a conversation predicated on the premise that we could know anything about that listener just because they're white. And uh, that's going to cause a meltdown. And by the way, you don't need to send me that email, listener. <laughs> uh, if I thought it was racist, I wouldn't do it. Uh, so maybe you're missing something, not me, mm. and, and might want to do a little bit of homework. But nonetheless, it doesn't take much to cause us to be quite upset and defensive and cry and break down and debate and argue and withdraw and forget it, then I'm not going to say anything and on and on. But the impact of that is not fragile at all. But the mm -hmm. impact of Amy Cooper was literally this man may be killed. Yeah. And she knows that. N nobody doesn't know that. And she used that. So, so the impact of our breakdowns is not fragile because it marshals behind it the weight of history and institutional control and power. And in that way, I think it functions as a kind of everyday white racial bullying Ooh, to be to powerful. be direct, was we oh, make it so punitive. And in the Amy Cooper case, uh, life-threatening for people of color to um, not stay in their place, to not challenge us, to not uh, have the audacity to be in my park asking me to follow the rules um, that most of the time they actually don't risk that punishment and don't talk to us about what they're experiencing and that serves us that keeps them in their place and us in our place uh, so white fragility is i see it as the sociology of dominance how mm -hmm. one of the the tools white people use to enforce the racial hierarchy and our position in it. So powerful. And as you're talking, I'm, I started these white accountability groups on Zoom. We're doing two this week, never did anything like it. We're gonna ask those questions. What are the racist white supremacist attitudes that probably fueled Amy Cooper and other white women throughout history? When have you had them? When have you acted on them? And when have you been silent? And what I just thought was the subtle ways that I weaponized my white fragility by saying, saying to my manager, you know, black, only black man on staff, you know, he seemed really angry today mm. in a meeting. So that back door behind the scenes. So it's not a new thought to you, but it is to me, the Amy Cooper is the blatant. Well, I don't know if it's blatant, but out there, but I think most whites, I want to support them. What are the daily, as you said, white supremacy bullying we do? Are there other examples that even pop to mind of how we whites, even progressive whites, oh, yeah. maintain this system, but we'd be like, oh, no, 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 I was just giving useful feedback. Yeah, I mean, it starts with um, what we think it means to be racist. 
Uh, so what, what are we taught it means to be racist? Well, a racist is an individual who mm. consciously doesn't like people based on race and is intentionally mean to them. Individual conscious malintent across race. And if that's my definition of what it means to be racist, well, first of all, it exempts me from virtually all, all my conditioning. It exempts me from the society I live in and have, a, and the messages of I've absorbed. And I think it's the root of virtually all white defensiveness, mm. because it makes being a good person and complicity with racism mutually exclusive. So then, what we hear is, you just question my very moral character. It isn't possible for me to be racist because I'm a good person who consciously is against racism. And so now you have just maligned my character. Um, so we simply can't get where we need to go from that, from that paradigm. You know, virtually every racist act that you can think of, and hers would be one of them, the people who perpetrated those acts would say, I'm not racist. So I'm not racist has a is actually functionally meaningless. It has no meaning. <laughs> uh, it's not convincing to anyone. Um, so in the, in the case of Amy Cooper, I, I would want to pick up, Tim Weiss recently wrote a piece that, that got me thinking, which is, yes, we all have implicit bias, a racial bias. All white people have absorbed that message that it's better to be white, that we are better because we're white. The research is just really clear. By three to four, we've absorbed that message. It's mm -hmm. everywhere. And so much of my work has been trying to get white people out of denial that they've absorbed that message. Yeah. But he makes a really powerful point. Um, that wasn't an implicit racism that Amy Cooper perpetrated. That was explicit. She knew exactly what she's doing before she made a call in which Okay, it would be reasonable to describe the person on the phone call, but she made it clear to him before she called uh, as a threat. I'm going to tell on you. I'm going to tell them that an African-American man is, is threatening me. And of course, I just have to add, and these are, this is also in a society that claims we don't notice any of these things. Right. So, so both those things are, are in us both the, the unaware, unconscious stuff. Uh, but in, there are moments when, you know, I don't think we can claim that we didn't know what we were doing. So, okay, that gets to, this is so layered and complex. So uh, excuse me that I have to kind of lay a foundation. I so appreciate and adore you. Keep going. Thank you. So in the workplace, as a, as a well-intended white progressive, I am never going to say the N word. I'm not going to tell a, a joke that is clearly racist, but I know at this point in my life that my inability to answer this question, what does it mean to be white? Mm. For most of my life, I could not answer that question. And my experience is that most white people cannot answer that question. And my inability to answer that question is not isolated, right? So, so imagine the workplace overwhelmingly white, virtually any workplace you're going to be in, certainly the leadership is going to be overwhelmingly white. And all those white people who are sitting at the table, controlling the table, deciding what happens at that table, deciding who gets to sit at the table, none of them can answer the question, what does it mean to be white? Mm. And that creates a hostile environment. Mm. Because if I can't tell you what it means to be white, I cannot hold what it means not to be white. I'm going to have no critical thinking on that topic. 
I'm going to have no uh, skills to navigate the conversation. I'm going to have no emotional capacity to withstand the discomfort of the conversation. And that means people of color can't be real with us. They spend inordinate amounts of energy tiptoeing around our delicate sensibilities, lest they upset us and things get worse for them. Again, I, I can't reinforce that enough. That, that so-called innocence, which is not innocent or benign, that it creates a hostile workplace, not the walking around with the, you know, a swastika tattooed on my arm saying the N-word. It's a different version. It's on a continuum, um, but it's not an either or. So when we come back, I want to keep talking about some of those racist behaviors and attitudes that we have in the workplace. We well-intended whites because I think my work, and it sounds like mostly yours is too, of trying to raise our awareness of people of color aren't carrying the emotional burden, aren't teaching, and then we are not perpetuating harm. And then who knows where we're going with Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Could you please let people know how they can learn more about you? How can they learn with you? before we go to sure. break. I have a website, robindangelo.com. It has videos of my talks. It has all of my publications, my books. Um, it has my events or links to an organization that coordinates my public events. And it has a resource page that is filled uh, with many, many, many good resources on what white people can do. I so appreciate your generosity of all that. If you're looking for other resources, drkathyabaird.com backslash events, E-V-N-T-S. You can get access to my book, But I'm Not Racist, Tools for Well-Meaning Whites for free, my book club, and then my course, Navigating Difficult Situations, Triggering Events, I've made free through the pandemic. And now that we're in this moment of um, racial justice, uprising, liberation, who knows what else will be free and available by so many. I'm Dr. Kathy Bayer, Transformation Change Radio. We will be back in just a few minutes with Dr. Robin D'Angelo. Tune in to The Truth is Funny with Colette Stephan each Wednesday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. This hit show will have you thinking outside the box and riding the wave of infinite potential. Join Colette on the Higher Self Network, inspiring listeners to shine their brilliance and ensure success while roaring with laughter as they recognize the humor of the giant cosmic joke. Visit TheTruthIsFunny.com. We remember a time when you could simply form a thought and it would manifest. The harmony was forgotten, but it is returning now. The power of inspiration and awakening radio with Julia Griffin on TransformationTalkRadio.com each second and fourth Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific. We'll take you on adventures through the heart and spirit exploring who we once were. This intuitive healer studied under the guidance of wolves, learning from their wisdom to master a higher frequency for a new state of mind. Visit OneTrueSelf.com. Stuck in a roundabout of dysfunction? Stop circling around difficult issues and find out what's been holding you back. Learn how to speak your truth to power with host Dr. Kathy O'Bear. Create real change with smart tools and smart strategies. No frills, no fluff, just life-changing conversations to help get you where you want to be. Extend your reach and become an agent for real change with Kathy O'Bear. For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.
Did you know that all of the shows on the Transformation Radio Network are available as podcasts to stream or download? Really? Check us out. Go to transformationradio.fm. We have business shows, spiritual shows, energy healing shows, and pretty much everything in between. Something for everyone guaranteed to inspire, educate, and transform. We are transforming the world one listener at a time. Tune in to Lucid Planet Radio with Dr. Kelly Neff. This hit show will illuminate your senses and empower you beyond your daily stressors and hardships. Renowned psychologist and author Dr. Kelly will captivate you with far-reaching topics and amazing guests as you wake to the greatest version of yourself. Learn to tap into your intuitions, think critically about our world, heal emotional and psychological wounds, and follow your passions to live your dreams. The Lucid Planet. Welcome home. Visit lucidplanetradio.com for more information. It's time to get your life back on Burn Bright Today with Jennifer Marcinelli. Tune in each month on TransformationTalkRadio.com. Learn to move from the darkness of burning out to the light of burning bright. Jennifer is redefining stress and the energetic causes of burnout, shining a light on process to get your life back. For more information about Jennifer and her work, visit BurnBrightToday.com. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear with my guest, Dr. Robin D'Angelo. And we're talking about the role of whites in these times to recognize racism in us, outside of us, how white supremacy attitudes, behaviors are not only around us, particularly in this time of protests and uprising, but also in our day to day. And what I believe in the work that I do is we whites have this energy to show up, and yet we show up still out of arrogance, entitlement, I know best, speaking over, dominating. And so the work I know we both do, and I know you do even more, is how can we support whites getting clearer about what is racism? How do we really manifest it moment to moment? Because if we are going to be joining in the organizing, in the protests, or in a nonprofit group, or trying to be helpful, we can still show up doing harm, or even in your organization, what can we do during this time of pandemic and racial justice liberation to not perpetuate racism, to not be in our silence and colluding? What are some options? So in that context, welcome back, Dr. Robin D'Angelo. And so, you know, you've been doing so much research and writing about white moves and what white progressives do. And I want to continue to learn for you because I don't care how long I've been in this work, I still show up in ways that my unconscious and malicious racist bias, I show up in my entitlements, so. And so do I. Mm. <laughs> um, I'm really clear that as a result of, of 20 years of this work, that I do less harm than I used to do. And that's no small thing <laughs> because less harm could actually be one more hour on someone's life that they didn't take home my nonsense, my dominating, my interruption, my, my arrogance, my certitude, and agonize all night long about whether they should talk to me about it, whether it's worth it, mm. uh, which, which it takes a toll on how long people literally live. Mm. Um, so I still do harm, but I do less harm. I um, am not defensive when I do it. Uh, and I'm, I, much better at recognizing it myself, not having to depend on people of color to always take those huge risks in calling it to my attention. And I have very good repair skills. 
And those are the things that build trust, not that we're free uh, of it. We won't be free of it in our lifetime, but we're going to make mistakes. Are we learning from those mistakes? Are we struggling uh, through those mistakes? So yes, show up at marches and things, but, but, but show up lightly, <laughs> you know, pay attention to those around you, listen to what uh, people of color are asking from you. And when you step in it, which you inevitably will, don't give up. You know, you could get it right by uh, three uh, black people and have one not like what you did. Great. Then would that person make the adjustment and then a different kind of adjustment? Yes, this requires something of us. It requires us to pay attention, to think critically, to always be asking in this moment what's needed. This person needs this, so I'll pay attention when I'm with this person. There aren't easy answers, right? There's not some list uh, of how to do it. Um, I, I want to tell a story. I was just in a conversation with Resma Minicum, who is a brilliant uh, racial healer, social worker. He wrote My Grandmother's Hands, uh, Healing from Racial Trauma. And he lives in Minneapolis. And just yesterday, he was in a grocery store buying groceries. And the white cashier said, she started a conversation um, oh, I see you're buying a lot of groceries. I'm not really sure I'm going to get make it home tonight. And he asked her why. And she said, uh, because they're going to close the freeways. Right. So she's kind of referring to what's going on. And he's like, okay. And then she looks at him and she says, I'm so glad I wasn't raised to be racist. Mm. And right then in that moment, he just, ugh, you know, just kind of sunk like, here we go. Um, and so I want to point out, I want to use that example to just kind of lay out how that worked. Why did he sink in that moment? Um, well, one is that the very thing she thought she was conveying to him, she was not conveying to him. What she was conveying to him is I have no critical awareness whatsoever uh, about my socialization. I have no self-awareness. Um, I have no background. I have no skills. Uh, and in that moment, Resma said she became dangerous to me because mm. right? if, um, if I can't, let me, let me put it this way, because an, another black, uh, colleague of mine, Aaron Trent Johnson says that that person is dangerous because that person is going to deny my reality. Mm. So imagine now all the exhausting effort and emotional labor and psychic labor that Resma would have to have done in order to respond to her in a way <laughs> that tried to push her, uh, tried to get her to understand that that's actually not possible, that that wasn't helpful to him, uh, that she needed to, you know, get involved, all of those things. So now imagine we're in a a work group, we're at work and we're having a dialogue. So many of us show up not having done any prior consciousness raising and we cause so much wounding in those groups. This is why so often in the workplace, uh, black people, indigenous people, people of color dread those conversations mm -hmm. um, because they're gonna have to endure all of this unconscious, um, in, a, in some ways nonsense. Right. Mm -hmm. There's all this 
credentialing and evidence that we white people offer up to establish that we're not racist. And that evidence in no way is establishing that. It's not actually possible for us to not be racist. So if I'm telling you I'm not racist, you know right now that I have no idea how any of this works. <laughs> so let's look at some of the evidence white people offer up. We can think of that, I, I use the term credentialing and, and actually how ridiculous so much of it is. So, so I see two overall categories of the evidence white people offer up. The colorblind stuff, that would be what the cashier said, that would be the, um, I was taught to treat everybody the same. And then the color celebrate. I had a black roommate in college. Uh, I've, I've been to Costa Rica. I was in Teach for America and the Peace Corps. I speak several languages. Yeah. I, I'm a minority myself. The, the, the proximity evidence. Mm -hmm. right? um, and regardless of whether you're doing colorblind or color celebrate, if we ask the question, not is this evidence true or false, is it right or wrong? But we ask, how does that evidence actually function in the conversation, mm. right? What happens when racism gets on the table and a white person says any one of those things that I just named? Well, it silences the conversation. It exempts the person from any part of the problem. It makes it almost impossible to move forward. So it's not convincing and it's not useful. And it rests on some rather um, thin criteria. So in the last year alone, two different people used I'm from Boston as their evidence that they were free of racism. <laughs> yeah. So, so many white people use proximity. Actually, the majority of the evidence a progressive is going to use is all about proximity. I did. Yeah. So do you think Harvey Weinstein didn't have proximity to women? <laughs> do you think Harvey Weinstein wasn't married to a woman? Did Harvey Weinstein assault every woman he came in contact with? Probably not. Was Harvey Weinstein a misogynist? Yes. Do you think that misogyny seeped out of his pores for any woman who was around him? I think so. Um, could the plantation owners tolerate proximity? Could people whose housekeepers are black women tolerate proximity? I mean, it's, it's absurd uh, to think that a, a racist can't tolerate closeness uh, to someone that they have racist attitudes towards. Mm. Mm -mm. Hmm. I'm really sitting with the harm we do as whites, not only in those statements, but others. Um, but I'm also maybe, and again, you go wherever you want, but as you were talking, I was wondering, there's so many whites listening that are just raising their consciousness with you and are learning more and then are now, so what do I do? And what I know, if we go back to the grocery store, there was a time in my life and I could probably tomorrow show up this way as a white person. You're being racist race now by what you're saying to him and thinking I'm being the white state, right? Whereas my impact of that type of, I call it aggressive, I'm trying to be the good white will then just add to the racist impact 
that Resma is experiencing. And so, so many whites are thinking, what can I do? So whether it's in the work environment and whites show up credentialing and using proximity or, um, cause those are some of the more subtle ways we show our racist attitudes or interrupting people of color or um, saying, actually, we have to get on task. We can't be pausing to talk about all those quote riots out there and all that looting. And so using those really dog whistle racist words. Yeah. Or wherever you would like. Well, um, let me just be really clear that I believe that Resma understood the woman's intentions. The woman's intentions were to signal to him that she was okay with him. That, that in some, if a very generous reading was a desire to be connected to him. And this mm. is what racism has robbed us of because we live such segregated lives. Most white people live segregated lives and do so quite comfortably. I recognize that. I'm sure Resma recognized that. And I would also say that in terms of the impact of what she said, it was somewhat meaningless. It's better that she didn't have bad intentions, but it still hurt him. It still was like exhausting to him. It was still like, oh, please just leave me alone and let me get out of here without this going any further. It still had him have to make a decision. Do I speak my truth to her right now? Or do I just get home? Uh, those those constant, relentless, exhausting decisions. So that recognizing the difference between intention and impact is really, really important. That should help us get less defensive. This there are two top questions I get whenever I give a talk, um, uh, and I'll save the the one I want to really speak to for last. So so. One is, how do I tell my family about their racism? How do I interrupt my coworkers' racism? So, so here's my response to, to any white person that that's their question right now. I'm going to look right into the camera. <laughs> how would I tell you about your racism? That's great. Seriously, how would I tell you about yours? Could we let's stay here instead of rushing out here? Because that question presumes I'm fine. It's not me. I'm good to go. I've got to go get everybody else woken up. And that's a part of our work, but it can never be separate from our recognition that we're in this too. Right. Um, and I actually think if you sat down and started thinking about that, you, you may come up with something useful for yourself. Uh, I like to kind of jokingly say, trust me, if you weren't here today and the person you're thinking of was, they'd probably be asking how to tell you about yours. <laughs> the other top question is, what do I do? That question has bothered me for a really long time. I actually think it's disingenuous. I think just, you know, I'm just listening to the show. I've never thought about this in my entire life. And now 45 minutes later, I want you to tell me what to do as if they're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but that's my experience. And please prove me wrong, listeners. But my experience is most white people aren't going to do anything different, but keep on being nice and friendly and smiling, uh, especially if it's inconvenient or, or, or it asks something of us. Hmm. And so I want to I want to offer a question back to anyone who's any white person whose question is, what do I do? How have you managed not to know? Hmm. So good. 
How have you managed to be a full functioning, educated adult, probably professional, probably a parent in some kind of way, and not know what to do about racism in 2020? When the information's everywhere, when they've been telling us forever, when you could look it up so easily, how have you managed not to know? And that's meant to be a challenge, of course, because I actually think it takes effort not to know. I think it's a kind of willful not knowing, a kind of refusal not to know. Um, and let me just add, even when people tell us what to do, we often sit back and say, well, yeah, I agree with that one, but not that one, right? Tell me about racism. Oh, no, I disagree with you. You know, the, the, you're asking people to tell someone what to do who may not even have any humility about the limits of their understanding. And it's also a sincere question. Take out a piece of paper. And you want to know what to do? I mean, I mean it. Take out a piece of paper and start writing down why you don't know what to do. And you'll have your, your map right there. There will be your map. Nothing on it will be quick or easy. Everything on it will be doable. So you might write, I wasn't educated on racism. Okay, well, that's easy to fix. <laughs> Two, I don't talk about racism with the white people in my life. Okay. <laughs> Three, I don't talk about racism with the people of color in my life. Four, I don't have people of color in my life. Five, I haven't cared enough to find out. Let's be honest. Six, I don't want to feel guilty. You know, whatever's on that list, you can address and none of it easily. I, I would start with Leila Saeed's wonderful workbook, Me and White Supremacy. It is literally a workbook. She says, it's not a book you read, it's a book you do. And it walks you through really excellent reflection and processes. Your work, you're so generous with your work, Dr. Aubert. Your work is, is out there too. It, it, the information is out there. I so appreciate your questions. You saw me frantically writing down because um, I do believe whites coming together and white accountability groups is one critical part. I love you bringing in Layla Saeed and her work and other folk of color, whether it's reading, book clubs, people are teaching classes and so compensating folk of color for their time and learning with so a balance <clears throat> without expecting, as you said, to only learn from folks of color. But when they're offering and there's a exchange of energy and money. It's a great place to go. Um, yeah. And to do that self-reflection in white groups, why haven't I, why I keep myself because I'm inconvenienced. And you talked powerfully about this when we talked before, and this is true for me. I spent much of my early work in diversity, really trying to dismantle heterosexism, homophobia, dismantling sexism, misogyny. I didn't have the words then, but I, those were my marginalized identities. <clears throat> and I mentioned race even for like a decade or two, but I was not doing dismantling racism, white supremacy work for a long time. People today are experiencing so much pain out of classism. And so I, whether, whatever the minoritized identity, but I'm particularly in my heart with all my class privilege, I'm aware of whites who have white privilege taught to be racist like I was and in such pain of the, in this pandemic before, but the pandemic is the gaps we're seeing now, plus the added classism and capitalism. So 
wherever you would like to go with that, mm -hmm. but with folks who are white, who are resisting saying, yeah, but, because that's one of the reasons I wasn't um, very competent for a while and still not. I was like, but I'm a woman, I'm a lesbian, I get I, it. Um, I would say take everything you think makes you an exception and ask yourself how being white shapes how you experience that exception. Because there's nothing you could come up with that isn't shaped by the fact that you're also white. So I was raised in poverty. And I mean that literally homelessness, foster care, living in our car. I didn't go to college until I was in my 30s. Uh, I had had and I still struggle with a deep sense of internalized shame, a deep sense of that I am not intelligent, that I am trash human garbage because I grew up white, that to live in a mobile home makes you human garbage. <laughs> uh, yes, I internalized all of those messages. And I also always knew that I was white, please. And I knew that it was better to be white. And being white has absolutely helped me navigate um, classism. I don't have less racism or less racial privilege because I experienced classism. Mm -hmm. I just learned my place in the racial hierarchy from a different class position than perhaps you learned yours if you were raised middle or upper class, but you and I both learned it. We learned our places. It's on us to examine how our class socialization interacts or as Kimberly Crenshaw powerfully says, intersects but nothing did and nothing could exempt any of us. And by placing race in the center of your analysis, I actually think that's the most powerful way to address all other forms of oppression or other aspects of what you think uh, makes you, you know, unique or different or special. It's, it's so liberating to start from the premise that, that nothing exempted you. And then you can truly get to work trying to identify uh, how it manifests in your life, but not if it manifests in your life. The answer to that is, uh, yes, it does. You know, and not understanding that makes us very manipulable. Jonathan Metzl wrote a powerful book, Dying of Whiteness. Mm -hmm. And he says right now in this pandemic, um, it's dying of whiteness on steroids because we are, uh, we voted against our own interests, and now we don't have the safety net. We don't have um, a, a healthcare system. We don't have an economic system that would serve us in large part because we were manipulated by, you don't want them to have what they don't deserve. So we can't give you these things. You know, the welfare queen, you know, uh, as a really obvious example. So let's cut all those social services because we don't want people who don't deserve them to have them. And look where we are now. You know, we're watching riots and um, our attention is just drawn right over to the looting, which is such a small part it, 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 uh, by people who are exploiting something, you know, so deep and real and painful and legitimate. And neo-Nazism, white nationalism, avowed white supremacy is growing at an unprecedented rate. And a lot of what you're witnessing in looting are people who are there to 
uh, make trouble and to who seriously have an agenda to start a race war. If you can't think critically about what you're seeing, you're going to be manipulated into putting your attention somewhere that isn't going to change the systems. And, and I just have to say, because I was on another show and listener after listener, but it's not right to to loot and to. And I keep thinking, how do you think that feels? right now for black people to hear white people only expressing or or saying yes it's terrible that he died but and as soon as you put the but there you just discounted what went before the but and put all of the emotional emphasis on what comes after the but which is but that property what happened to us really what happened to us that that's where our concern goes I think most whites listening have that same in us. Yes, property. What if that was my house? What if that was my store? Um, and how do we hold it all and until we get with other whites to have the conversation? All weekend, I saw all these whites, governors to mayors, talking about stay home, no violence. And I did not hear... And we are arresting the three other officers and we are calling in all these folks to revitalize police reform and we are cutting off funding until there's change and just all the systemic changes. I didn't hear that. Now I wasn't everywhere, but the distraction from what are the key issues, much less all of the racism, white supremacy for centuries that is now in truly generational trauma that might be fueling why folks are marching, might speaking out, protesting, rallying. Um, We have about two minutes. If my son was executed in that way, in the most callous, brutal way, in the calmest way, while the officer who was executing Mm. my son had his hands in his pocket, and he and all the other officers knew they were being filmed and, and were calm about it. And my son had been murdered uh, just, it was this week when uh, hundreds before had been murdered. Do you think I wouldn't set a car on fire? Yeah. <laughs> Explode in impotent outrage? Uh, you know, it, it, I just, it's part of a system, a whole, it's, uh, you know, if we didn't have that kind of situation, you wouldn't see looting. You want to end looting. <laughs> and I want to be really careful here because I don't think most of the protesters are looting. No, handful. Yeah. As we close, and I wish we had another hour, could you remind people how to find you and all your brilliant, generous resources? Thank you. Go to robindiangelo.com. My books are there that you can purchase. My articles are all there uh, easily uh, accessible to download. Videos, um, tons of resources, and a link to um, public events that I'm doing. Robin, I am thanking you from my soul. I learned so much from you. I can't wait to keep learning with you in so many ways. I'm Dr. Kathy O'Bear. I'm here every Monday, and I think I'm going to do several more this month. So please be safe and well and get learning about racial justice. You've been listening to Dr. Kathy O'Bear on Transformation Talk Radio. Thanks for tuning in, and be sure to catch us next time as Kathy inspires listeners to become agents of change, motivate, innovate, and speak truth to power. Step into the courageous you that will change the world. Connect to life-changing conversations to extend your reach 
For more information on Kathy and her work, please visit drkathyobear.com. That's drkathyobear.com.